Appendix of Silly and Its Legends by Henry John Whitfeld. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Appendix. A supplementary chapter is but a dull affair, after all. If anything good has gone before, this kind of parting word must always be full of melancholy. We are winding up a feast by languidly picking the bones, yet a supplementary chapter must be written were it only to rid the main narrative of those dry details and commonplaces which, when gathered together and set apart from the rest like an awkward squad, may be reviewed and dispatched at once. In this case, moreover, I have an additional reason for dreading the ponderous dullness of an appendix. Almost every account of Silly has been written in a style so oracular and so heavy, with such a parade of learning and such an apparent inquisition into antiquities, that as soon as one only touches on a point of classical or barbarian information, the shadowy hand of some sage Theban seems to start up and claim it for its own. Footnote. I may say here that Scilly is as much an unknown land as the Tierra del Figo. In the city article of the Times of, I think, May 31st, it is contrasted with Lobos of Fuerno, the guano rocks in the Pacific, and described as being inhabited by fishermen and pilots. I only wish the writer could see the Abbey Gardens. Footnote ends. Erudition appears to be the forte of the clerical historians of Scilly, their strongest point, in fact, except smuggling. Footnote. If credit is sometimes taken where there is no learning, credit is sometimes also denied where it exists. We know the old epigram, Sigit Voltaire, quenet rain, pas mem academician. But I remember a case more in point. There is a college in Cambridge to which is accorded an easy and graceful preeminence in letters. Yet a cantab wrote this of one of its members. Here lies a doctor of divinity, and a senior fellow of Trinity, and he knew as much about divinity as any other fellow of Trinity. Footnote ends. For my part, I suspect the scholarship of these learned men and grow tired of their ancient Pegasus, even as the worthy Parisian, whose wife, being in raptures with a statue of the gardens of the Tuileries, exclaimed, Ah, l'antique, comme c'est beau, to which the spouse replied, Oui, ma femme, and marbre. A friend of mine, who was ambassador to the sublime port, was once upon a time sailing down the waters with Golden Horn in a cark, having in his company a French traveller, his temporary guest. My friend wrote a very illegible hand. The conversation happening to turn on the education of our diplomats, he observed, partly in jest, partly also in reference to his own deficiencies as a scribe, that England cared so little for the training of her ministers as to employ, in his own case, an envoy who could neither write nor spell. The Gaul bowed, shrugged his shoulders, and made a note of the remark and in his travels produced with all that depth of observation and knowledge of other lands which is characteristic of that thoughtful and sober nation this little anecdote appeared in so many words as an instance of one among the many failings of england sometimes when we are told that the greeks must have colonized these islands because priglus is evidently a corruption of pericles we are apt to feel such classical superiority rather overpowering and to wish for an hour with an ambassador not yet in his a b c Footnote. I suspect that the Salonians, when at a loss for a local designation, sometimes coin one. A very old man told me that Troutbeck engaged a guide to the different places and wrote down their names as they were reported to him by his Cicerone. On one occasion they came to a tall rock upon which the sun was shining. The man, 
not knowing what else to say, boldly affirmed that it was the sun-rock, and so it stands in Troutbeck. Apropos of him, I saw at a farm called London a set of antique teaspoons and sugar-spoon that had belonged to the historian, marked with his initials J.T. Footnote ends. So brightly thy brain with its classics is burning, with Greek and with Latin, with verb and with tense, we whisper, O oh, give us a little less learning, and fill up the void with a little more sense. But still, however I may linger on its confines, the supplementary chapter must be written, and to use Falstaff's metaphor, this borrowing only lengthens it out. So I may as well begin at once, as I have been writing a good deal about silly, by inquiring what the word silly means. First, nearly all the variations of the name have the same root. With the exception of Aestromindes, as they were called, by Festus Avinius, a poet who wrote De Oris Maritimus, and not one word of whose works have I ever read, their appellation has always been pretty much the same. They were described as Insulae Silenae, as Siglades or Silures, as Sulla by the Britons, or Sulingae Insulae, Infatiolati, as Sully or Silly in ancient grants. I agree, therefore, with Mr. Augustus Smith, who is most competent to form an opinion on the subject, and with Davies Gilbert, that the derivation of all these names is to be found in the ancient British word Lily, Silly, Anglis, Conga. Secondly, with regard to their physical changes and their successive inhabitants, there is a field for conjecture much wider and, unfortunately, much more difficult to get over. That the Phoenicians came here, there is little doubt. That they traded here is not improbable. But I do not believe that they were the Cassiterides or the Hesperides, unless as being taken as part of that unknown Britain from which the ancients drew such vast mineral wealth. Footnote. Discoverers of a country make very naturally mistakes of this nature. Columbus thought the island of Hispaniola part of the mainland, and then afterwards believed the continent of America to be an island. This is exactly a case in point. Footnote ends. This is not unlikely to have been the case, for the great distance of these coasts naturally rendered all knowledge of them imperfect. The early merchants who came here were not colonists, and could know but little of the country beyond its shores, and the spots at which they touched to barter and to refit. The people dwelling here were probably Britons, with a slight intermixture of strangers. There is not one single trace of any Greek or Phoenician custom, building, or name to be found. Footnote. I have, however, stumbled on a fragment of a Roman road or pavement, on the old track across the hill from Holyvale to Hewtown, it passes by one of the most charming places on the islands, now called Rocky Hill, but formerly Brimstone Hill. It is just the ivy-grown cottage in which to spend a honeymoon. A very pleasant and intelligent damsel, seeing a stranger passing before the house, asked me in with the usual courtesy and good breeding of every rank of silly. Footnote ends. Every vestige of religion that we see here, Circle, Barrow and Cromlech, are all druidical, and every burial place is British or Danish. The Aboriginal, doubtless, was harried by the Saxon, and the Saxon by the Dane, and the Dane gave place to the Norman, but all these were kinsmen of the great Indo-Germanic race, passing over and covering the land like successive waves of the same sea. Thirdly, as respects the physical changes said to have taken place, there is a good deal of room for hesitation. The islands have certainly varied much, even within the memory of man. Two fields at St. Mary's that are now submerged are still remembered to have been cultivated, between Briar and Samson, and Briar and Tresco, and around Teen and St. Helens are seen the remains of hedges and of buildings. Vestiges of the kind are said to be found in many places now covered by the sea. St. Helens, which is uninhabited, had formerly a church. St. Lyde's, supposed, 
I know not why, to be Rat Island, is spoken of by Leyland as a place where was a great superstition. The same venerable authority calls Trescor, or Innescor, the largest of the islands, and mentions its circumference as being between nine and ten miles, and adds that wild boars roamed over it, its extent therefore must have been double what it is now, in fact exactly what it would be, including Briar and Samson, and it must have had coverts for the wild animals that ranged through it, which it does not possess now. Fourthly, again, tradition says that Silly was once united to lands and by a tract of country called the Lioness, or in Cornish, Lithoso, containing 140 churches and a vast population, and this wide district was sunk beneath the sea by some violent convulsion of nature. Whittaker supports this opinion and says that fishermen have brought up windows and fragments of building from the buried houses, which is simply absurd, for windows were not used in the little cone-shaped hive-like cots of those days. Footnote. Several persons tell me that, at the seven stones, small diamond-shaped panes set in lead and forming rude casements have been found. Footnote ends. But the family of Trevelyan have a very curious legend bearing on this point. They relate that one of their ancestors had great possessions on the Lioness or Lothoso, and that at the time of the inundation he saved himself by swimming to shore on a white horse in memory whereof. The family bear a white horse as their crest to this hour. Some authors gravely fix this deluge as anterior to the time of Trajan from internal evidence. In the present day, we are too apt to disregard and hold to cheap tradition, yet tradition is often a sure guide when history is merely mute, and particularly in the case of any great calamity or shock, such as, for example, the deluge, the memory of which is preserved where records are silent. This is found true, especially in districts solitary or remote, as at Scilly or in the Highlands of Scotland. Remember an instance of its accuracy, which is to the point here. Some men were boring for water in the north, but failed to find it. An old shepherd who observed them told them to try a place which he pointed out, for there was a belief handed down from father to son that a well had formerly existed there. The workman tried the spot indicated, and at some distance from the surface broke into an ancient well. Now it is beyond doubt that the local tradition asserts positively the partial or entire connection of Scilly with the mainland. The fact is beyond dispute. It may well be without foundation, but right or wrong, it is an article of faith held most implicitly. The person with whom I was conversing one evening told me that people could once go from hence to Penzance without finding on their way more water than a horse could drink up. There is likewise a popular legend which relates that at Seven Stones, where there is now a light ship, a city formerly stood. Footnote. It is always reported by the natives to have been called the City of Lions. Footnote ends. It is a very curious circumstance that the part of the rock which is pointed out by tradition as the site of this place is still called the town. In fact, I could fill a volume with anecdotes relating to this subject and to the subsidence of the land, followed by a proportionate advance of the waters. I heard from the grandson of a very aged man that his great-grandfather remembered a causeway from the Abbey Church at Tresco across the Downs and along what is now C to the old church of St. Helens. There was a bridge across the Abbey Pool, exactly on the same spot where the wooden one now stands. Now that there have been great changes in the outward conformation of these islands is, I think, self-evident. People did not build under the sea. That portion, on which are seen works of man's raising, must, at the time of their erection, have been above the level of the ocean. Probably many of these changes have been wrought gradually and insensibly, as some of them must have taken place since the time of Leyland in the 16th century. A payment of seven quarters of wheat is mentioned, Temp Edward III, which proves that corn was then grown here far more extensively than now. 
the sea is certainly encroaching slowly but steadily on all the western coasts as well as here for seventy years ago people played cricket on green fields between marazion and penzance where there is now nothing but sand under the level of the tides but tradition which often bears down in its current a sad memory of events that would otherwise have been forgotten as history deems them beneath her notice speaks so positively and has always so spoken of great and mysterious changes wrought hereabouts by some shock or convulsion that i can hardly doubt that something of the kind must have occurred in this case we can but guess at truth crests have not existed more than about six hundred years perhaps the white horse of the trevelyans may enable us to fix the date of these vast changes it is supposed that about the close of the eleventh century there occurred simultaneously all over the coasts of england a terrible invasion of the sea it is known at least that in many places large tracts of land were entirely overflowed and lost the great district now called goodwin sands was certainly swallowed up at that period of this there can be no doubt since it is an historical fact it is equally capable of proof i believe that the whole of mounts bay was then submerged the former line of coast having extended from cudden point to mouse hole the inundation in kent and suffolk is known to have taken place in autumn and in digging below the sands in mounts bay leaves and hazelnuts are constantly found showing that the incursion of the sea must have been sudden and at a season of the year when leaves and ripe fruits were plentiful st michael's mount was called the hall rock in the wood which it then was the same deluge that was so wide and so disastrous in its effects may have proved equally fatal here there might have been no lioness overwhelmed and the tale may as it is said be an invention of florence of worcester but the deadly work of the waters not improbably left marks of its course on these islands there was at that time a mighty flood it submerged almost provinces one portion of land and no inconsiderable one so destroyed was in this very neighbourhood why may the effects of the deluge not have swept past this spot and covered what evidently was once dry and cultivated land tradition is seldom wrong in outlines though it is seldom right in details the white horse of the trevelyans may not have been a mere myth after all when the flood took place along the coasts their ancestor may have saved himself by swimming and his son or grandson have assumed the present crest of the family in honour of an event which occurred within memory of living man gentlemen said once a celebrated geologist having started some novel theory before a crowded university lecture room and being afraid of his own boldness gentlemen i never theorise pray tell nobody what i have now said in venturing on the above hypothesis i do not lay down a positive fact like the worthy lecturer i state no theory i only throw out a suggestion which as i write it entirely from memory and without any aid from books may be incorrect both as to facts and dates perhaps however the hint is worth giving as it is the only practical way at least the only one that has occurred to me of reconciling mythology with what is authentic and true fifthly the greater extent of these islands at some former and uncertain time is i think proved as well by scanty historical records as by the druidical remains and sepulchral monuments which are not only numerous but in many cases large and of some pretension as i said elsewhere if there were temples there must have been priests and worshippers if there were so many chiefs and men of rank as we may suppose there were by the large tombs so frequently discovered there must also have been common people in proportion now tombs of all kinds are found everywhere i saw by mere chance at the abbey two opened evidently danish in one of which the body had been doubled up perhaps from being neglected until cold for the head was upon the chest they both pointed east and west several layers of bones were found a day or two after in one of which was a curious round stone marked with a greek cross 
showing probably that the dead were Christians and proving a successive population on this spot. They might have been a memento of the conquest of Sicily in 927 by Athelstan, the eighth Saxon king who, after offering up his orisons at the ancient church of St. Berrien, near the land's end, came hither and founded a priory on this sunny slope. On his return to Cornwall, he built also, in pursuance of his vow, a college in St. Berrien. There must have been some considerable number of inhabitants here, or a king would not have thought it worth his while to conduct the invasion in person. As regards the graves, Pliny speaks of the fondness of our ancestors for insular internment, but the custom entailed an expense only to be incurred by the rich, and could not at all events be applicable to close and crowded burial places. Another peculiarity of these islands, as I before said, is their want of all medieval remains. There are literally no sepulchral relics. We find historical reminiscences of many families, some of considerable antiquity, but all are gone and vanished utterly. The noble Norman house of de Barrington was seated here, and we read of Rudolf de Blankminster, and John de Allet, and William de Poor, and of others of no mean estate. Yet there is no sign nor token of their existence to be discovered. I do not think that, except in the buried cities of America, there is on record an instance of such an utter blank, of such complete loss of all human memories. The physical changes that have taken place through the encroachments of the sea do not account for this perfect void, nor the fact that though this group has been peopled and thickly peopled even from times wholly mythical, we find nothing more recent than druidical or Danish graves until we come to those constructed for the fathers of living men. This gap in the ordinary course of time could not fail to strike so careful and acute an observer as Borlase, though he was utterly unable to account for the phenomenon. Sixthly, the subsequent history of the islands may be comprised in a few words. Of their ecclesiastical annals little is known. Their religious establishments were, it appears, many but of small extent. There was a priory at Tresco dedicated to St. Nicholas and communicating by road over dry land with the church at St. Helens. We find records of cells or chapels bearing the names of St. Theona, St. Cumon or St. Rumon, St. Awound and St. Mary. Footnote. I discovered the site of one of these in Hewtown at the foot of the hill leading to the garrison. Within the memory of man there was standing a doorway with a fine pointed arch and some windows whose copings and mullions were of carved stone. My informant told me that she lived in it and that her father remembered it as an old Roman church. Its remains were only pulled down twenty years ago, for I spoke with the mason who did it. Some of the sculpted stones may still be seen on the spot. The burial ground was above it on the rising ground. Lying against the wall at the old pier may be seen the ancient money-box of the church. It is identified by several persons and is still entire. There are likewise traces of similar institutions in other parts, as at Holy Vale, Church Ledge, Monk's Port, and Carn Friars. On Salaki Down are two crosses, built into a hedge, but where, we may ask, are the relics of medieval Catholicism? They are gone. Even as it were a tale that is told, they exist only in a few grey stones at St. Helens, in a solemn arch at Tresco, in the spirit that broods over the heath at Salaki and clings round the neglected crosses that are mouldering there. All that we see is no more than this. All that we know is that Sully was granted, according to one account, by Athelstan the Saxon, to the Abbey of Tavistock, and that, according to another, to the same Abbey, by Henry I. The principal seat of spiritual government was at Tresco, and the head of it was called the Prior of Sully. At the Reformation it lapsed to the Crown. As to its civil state, Sully, or Sully, was granted by Henry I to Reginald de Dunstable, Earl of Cornwall, his illegitimate son, and was governed in general by the coroner as his deputy. It seems to have been always attached to the earldom of Cornwall as, for its sins, 
it is now to the duchy law however appears to have partaken of the character of those good old times for example by the rolls placitia de gerastus et assises twelfth of edward the first john de allet and isabella his wife hold the isle of scilly and hold there all kind of pleas of the crown throughout their jurisdiction and make indictments of felonies when any one is attained of any felony he ought to be taken to a certain rock in the sea and with two barley loaves and one pitcher of water upon the same rock they leave the same felon until by the flowing of the sea he is swallowed up this john de allet held lands of ranulph de blankminster footnote called in the old rolls del blanco ministerio blankminster or whitchurch constable of the castle of enna footnote ut ante en nor in a moor that is great islands and marys by night service by the time of henry the third drew de barrington was the great man here they were true sea kings those old barrington's keeping to the tastes of the northmen they held the channel islands under the crown and were known to have stuck as long as they could to the seashore at this time the isles of scilly were minished and brought very low by persecution and plague and trouble in the time of henry the sixth they were valued only to rent of fifty puffins or six shillings eightpence in fourteen eighty four temp king richard the third they were estimated in the time of peace at forty shillings in time of war nothing at the reformation they were said to have been forgotten they did not go with the abbey church of tavistock to which they pertained ecclesiastically nor were they placed under the jurisdiction of the bishop of exeter until eighteen thirty seven in fact it is a mystery how or when the civil and ecclesiastical power lapsed to the duchy of cornwall in the grant of it to the king's eldest son there is no mention whatever made of the isles of scilly on the twentieth of june sixth year of edward the sixth in a deed of releasing an annuity granted by beauchamp out of the lands of trevenick in st agnes parish in cornwall the party releasing describes himself as thomas godolphin esq captain of the isles of scilly queen elizabeth granted these islands to sir francis godolphin on military tenure at a yearly rent of ten pounds and they remained in his family till about seventeen years ago when the duke of leeds refusing to renew william the fourth as duke of cornwall gave a lease of ninety-nine years on three lives to the present proprietor mr augustus smith seventhly in my motto prefixed to this work i have altered the giara and cephero of juvenile into names derived from this group and there is a propriety in doing so for these islands like those of greece were used as places of confinement and of banishment instantatus a heterodox bishop from spain was exiled hither by emperor maximus and so were many churchmen and many lay romans of rank dr bastwick after his cruel treatment by the star chamber was detained here a prisoner until sixteen forty he was kept in star castle the next person immured was a curiosity fifth report of the public records sixteen fifty five sixteen fifty six page two hundred and fifty seven john biddle the celebrated unitarian a prisoner at scilly allowed a pension of ten shillings per week and imprisoned there by oliver cromwell to keep him out of the way of his persecutor footnote we know well the violence of polemical hate only fancy an assembly of the representatives of the different sects who have found here a prison or a home only picture the arian and euchian hesarach matched with the unitarian and the independent and the fifth monarchy man and john wesley as tough as any of them in spite of his long white hair i could find but one simile to express their meeting and that is a sermon i once heard by a worthy and learned canon he was describing the resurrection my brethren said the reverend demosthenes imagine a pile of bones past all imagination 
footnote ends what a commentary on the success of the struggle for religious liberty in sixteen forty five prince charles came here for six weeks lady fanshawe in her memoirs gives a delightful picture of the discomforts of an abode among the wreckers and smugglers of that day let it be remembered that high-born cavaliers and ladies then adhering to the royal cause did so voluntarily they might have submitted and enjoyed their own in peace but they preferred exile with honour and when sir john grenville might have surrendered these islands to van tromp who came with a mighty armament and offered in exchange for them most advantageous terms he utterly refused to treat with a stranger or to yield up any part of the soil of england to foreign rule after a gallant struggle he gave up the place into the hands of blake and ayscoff the rebel leaders in may sixteen fifty one silly was the resort of many distressed cavaliers who found here a temporary asylum among them was a gentleman of the family of the lord proprietor francis godolphin father probably of the famous sydney godolphin there are at tresco abbey some very interesting fragments of letters written by him during his residence they give such a faithful picture of the state of affairs that existing in the islands that i cannot refrain from transcribing portions of them which i am permitted to do by the kindness of their owner they all bear the date sixteen forty three from francis godolphin to john rogers for your coming over and making up your books if it were not for displeasing somebody that i never will if i can help it i should be very glad of seeing you and the place is worth your seeing too indeed i like it much better than i did expect though i must confess i came the more willingly hither because i was not well at ease where i was ellipsis there has no ship come in hither since jack went but a falmouth warrior which received a broadside from one of the pile ships the day before i conceive there can be no possibility of peace our god be merciful to us your friend fra godolphin i pray let there be one line in your next in another hand number two from silly ellipsis to come hither considering how glad i am at all hours to have you by me and the novelty of the place for a few days would entertain you contentedly enough and more than a few would tire you ten times more than compton did there are also some things about this place i do not mean the fortifications but the grounds wherein your judgment having viewed it would be of use to me i would also that you should see my patience for this place in respect of an absolute want of a welcome company is a strange change to me yet a very honest man born here may live very happily as many do and would not change for twice so much a year in cornwall for all this i would by no means be guilty of drawing you hither if it did any way dislike your best friend we have seen no doubtful ship upon the coast a great while yours f g thirteenth of june sixteen forty three number three i have received a warrant from the king to carry over two hundred men more for the safeguard of the fort at scilly for the summer the estates of divers delinquents and the tithes of divers parishes are directed towards the maintenance of the place there are also the woods of some delinquents as the lord roberts both trebles boscarwen st alban and erisey appointed to be sold by mr jane mr dryden mr spurman out of which six hundred pounds is in the first place to be paid to me for provision of a magazine of victuals at Scilly. In the margin is added, All the news at Oxford is of the great blow the Scots have had from my lord of Newcastle, six thousand said to be slain and taken, with all their ordnance and ammunition. This came to the king by many several ways, and I am confident is true, in a great measure, which God grant to his glory and our comfort, but there is no express come yet from the army number four fragment the army goes on the men from cornwall are put over for one month more i must be here at midsummer being then promised fairly money for silly 
without which I dare not go among them. If I speed well, I shall, God willing, be with you, so as that I may be returned from Scilly by Michaelmas, your friend, June 20th, Fra Godolphin. In Lady Fanshawe's Memoirs, London, 1831, pages 74 and 75, March 1645, after giving an account of her misfortunes, during the passage with Sir Nicholas Crisp, footnote, is this the good and loyal merchant so celebrated in the civil wars? Footnote ends. She says, Next day, after having been pillaged and extremely sick and big with child, I was set ashore almost dead in the island of Scilly. We had got to our quarters near the castle where the prince lay. I went to bed, which was so vile that my footman ever lay in a better, and we had but three in the whole house, which consisted of four rooms, or rather partitions, two low rooms and two little lofts, with a ladder to go up to. In one of these they kept dried fish, which was his trade, and in this my husband's two clerks lay. One there was for my sister, and one for myself, and one among the rest of the servants. But when I walked in the morning, I was so cold I knew not what to do, but the daylight discovered that the bed was near swimming with the sea, which the owner told us afterwards. It never did so but at springtide. With this we were destitute of clothes and meat and fuel, and truly we begged our daily bread, for we thought every meal our last. Quote ends. In 1669, the Grand Duke Cosmo, who was making a tour of Great Britain, came to Scilly. He gives in his diary a view of Star Castle, as it then existed, which corresponds pretty closely with its appearance at the present day. The Grand Duke speaks in terms of praise of the islands and of the reception he met from the governor. After the Great Rebellion, we find the islands declining gradually. The steward of the Godolphin family was the virtual master, and like all stewards, fattened on the spoils of his lord. Footnote, I insert here an anecdote very honourable to the nobleman then proprietor. The common ancestor of the present families of the name of Sheris was drowned, and his vessel lost. He left a widow, a son who was quite a youth, and six daughters. The boy, feeling his mother and sisters dependent on him, and unable to pay his rent, boldly went to England and saw Lord Godolphin. He was fair and of a ruddy countenance, and when he told his sad tale, he was dismissed with the simple words, Well, my flaxen-haired boy, go back as fast as you can to Scilly. There was, however, a generous eloquence in his lord's brevity. He received his house and land rent-free for his life, and was also appointed to a place in the customs. The five girls who survived were insular heiresses, for it is related that they had fortunes of six score guineas each. They, too, behaved very well. The uncle's will, under which they inherited this wealth, left it only to four by name. Those four, nevertheless, refused to profit by what they said must have been a mistake. They made their sister's share equal to their own. Footnote ends. Old Troutbeck gives a lamentable picture of the treatment of all those who differed from this functionary and of the neglect of the Leeds family. A petition sent up by him as chaplain to the Duchess of Leeds was returned by her, and an answer read in church by the clerk to the intent that the Duchess supposed the signatures to the papers she had received forgeries, and that she never interfered in the Duke's business. Poor old Troutbeck, though he did run away to escape the consequences of a little smuggling, wrote a very amusing book which is well worth the trouble of reading by anyone who wishes to compare the state of Scilly in his time with its position now. The next visitor to St. Mary's was no cavalier. In 1743, in Wesley's journal, I find that he started from St. Ives with three companions in a boat borrowed from the mayor. They diverted their attention from the dangers of the sea by singing an appropriate psalm. On landing at St. Mary's, he called on the governor and presented him with a newspaper, just as one does at the Cape or at Calcutta now, not being allowed to preach in the church, he held forth twice in the street to a great crowd, among whom he distributed tracts and hymn-books. He then returned, 
and was in some peril, but reached St. Ives safely. Two rather naive and characteristic remarks are added by the excellent missionary. First, when the pilot, from the heavy swell, said that they should be lucky if they reached land, Mr. Wesley remarked that he knew not him whom the wind and seas obey. Secondly, when he saw the numbers of workmen and people employed by government, he marvelled at their being collected on such a barren rock, which whosoever would take might have for his pains, but he soon discovered, as a reason, the opportunity of hearing the gospel from him. I learn, however, though the fact is suppressed by the worthy man, that he was pelted out of Hugh Town, and that this was the reason for his short stay. There now remains little to add. The state of Scilly began to reach its lowest point of depression. St. Agnes was at one point entirely uninhabited. The wretched dwellers on the other islands used to come to St. Mary's every Saturday for the purpose of systemic beggary, and the pittance thus gained with a trifle earned from burning kelp and by fishing formed their sole resource. Their condition may be supposed by this fact. Footnote. It is much to the credit of the Salonians that in one respect their standard of morality is very high. They are extremely honest in all my dealings with them. I have never met with one attempt at fraud. A person who had the reputation of being at all lax in this respect is looked down upon and shunned and is made a sort of pariah among his neighbours. The same feeling that leaves doors unbarred and linen exposed on the hills to bleach at night is extended to personal immunity from danger. Not only a man but a girl may walk about in safety at any hour without the slightest fear of insult or of wrong. Their condition may be supposed by this fact. So it is no wonder that in 1774 the court rolls showed the existence of great misery which continued for many years to grow worse and worse until in 1818 a deputation from the magistrates at Penzance came over to investigate it. They did so to the best of their ability on the publication of their report, which excited a painful feeling, very similar to that now awakened for the suffering and starving people of Skye. A subscription was begun throughout England on their behalf and nearly £10,000 were raised for their relief. A collection of this kind generally starts with enthusiasm and ends in a job. It was so in this instance. The money found its way into the wrong pockets. Corporations, said Lord Thurlow, are things that have neither noses to pull nor bodies to kick, and the same may be said of committees. The amount thus liberally given disappeared in the apparent attempt to establish a pilchard fishery, and the distress remained as deeply rooted and as hopeless as before. In 1810, Mr. Tucker, surveyor-general of the Duchy of Cornwall, came to Scilly to consider and report on the practicability of making a roadstead and harbour. His pamphlet shows much ability and contains many valuable suggestions, but though he warmly advocated the construction of extensive works as a place of refuge for the shipping, his advice met with no attention from the government. The population in 1801 was 1,813, in 1838, 2,618. In the census of 1851, the numbers were St. Mary's males, 737, females 905, total 1,642, houses 285, Tresco males 177, females 237, total 416, houses 96, St. Martin's males 97, females 114, total 211, houses 46, Briar and Samson, males 68, females 60, total 128, houses 33. St. Agnes, males 83, females 121, total 204, houses 51, total souls 2,601, houses 511. The females appear more numerous than the males, but this is merely owing to the absence of the latter with their ships, both as pilots and as being engaged in the foreign trade, and the seeming diminution of the population is caused by a stop having been put to the ruinous and demoralising subdivision of land 
which was carried to such a frightful extent that sons and daughters were portioned off with a few square yards of ground my long residence in france enables me to speak on this point sadly and decidedly the law of majorat or of primogeniture has been repealed in that country about sixty years the effect anticipated from its abolition was the creation of an independent class of small proprietors such as now exists in italy where the code seville has been a less time in operation but france has passed through that stage and has gone a step lower in the scale land is there parcelled out into portions so minute and so numerous as hardly to be imagined by us but it is done to such an extent that even the roads and paths form a subject of enormous litigation and of vast importance and as every frenchman wishes to be a proprietor the first thing to be done by a peasant when he gets a little money is to buy a patch of land paying part of the purchase money and borrowing the remainder on mortgage an idea of the growing ruin of this vast class may be formed from the fact that the lowest average rate of interest for capital raised on this species of security is nine per cent while the whole debt on the landed property of france is not less than four hundred and fifty millions sterling and i have heard it on good authority computed at five hundred millions footnote ends the whole group of Scilly consists of one hundred and forty-five rocks but the inhabited portions at present are but six in number as will be seen by the statement above many islands formerly cultivated and peopled are now deserted by the kindness of mr john banfield i have obtained correct returns of the shipping at three periods equidistant from each other and sufficiently remote to give a good idea of the steady and increasing prosperity of the port on the thirty-first of december eighteen twenty five there belonged to Scilly eleven vessels under fifty tons four vessels above fifty tons total fifteen vessels of the burthen five hundred and seventy four tons on the thirty first of december eighteen thirty eight twenty vessels under fifty tons thirty vessels above fifty tons total fifty vessels of a burthen of three thousand and sixty two tons on the thirty first of september eighteen fifty one thirteen vessels under fifty tons forty six vessels above fifty tons total fifty nine vessels of a burthen six thousand eight hundred and forty three tons the largest vessel built out and belonging to the port is the cassiterides of four hundred and fourteen tons register belonging to the messrs banfield a great proportion of the salonian merchantman is a one for twelve years at lloyd's in a dozen years the average measurement increased from sixty one to one hundred and sixteen tons a progress probably unparalleled in the annals of marine enterprise if Scilly owed to the present proprietor no more than the abolition of this system she would have entailed upon her a deep debt of gratitude but her obligations are far more extensive and important and she has forgotten the sufferings caused by her ancient misrule and has thriven under a hand dispensing far more liberally than it receives if the scene of more than celtic misery which seventeen years ago characterized these islands has like the magic of a dissolving view been passed into a state of prosperity without a parallel if there be no mendacity no unions and no paupers if the land be cultivated like a garden and the port full of ships if the churches be crowded with well-dressed and devout congregations if smuggling and wrecking be unknown if all these things be true and that they are so every resident can testify it is wholly the work of one man in spite of every obstacle and discouragement and long-standing abuse he may indeed well say as did his namesake of rome lateritium envi manarium relinquo footnote I found it of brick, I leave it of marble. Footnote ends. End of appendix. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia. End of Silly and its Legends by Henry John Whitfeld.